Hi, my name is Michaela Grant-Mentis, former MVP of the PHF, currently playing for Toronto 6, number 13, and you're listening to the Pro Sports Podcasters. We are the Pro Sports Podcasters, where no sport is left behind. It's time for another episode of the Pro Sports Podcasters, with your hosts, Nee Wallace-Bruce, Corbert Durand, and Justin Williams. On this podcast, we have guests from all over the world, covering every sport from artistic gymnastics to weightlifting. We are something for every sports fan on PSP. Whether your interests are the athletes playing the game, the coaches, or the media, we've got you covered. Fun and informative, honest and engaging. You won't want to miss a single episode. So let's kick this off. Welcome back to the Pro Sports Podcasters. I'm your co-host, Neil Wallace-Bruce, a.k.a. NWB, and I'm joined by the talented Mr. Kobe Durand, a.k.a. Kobe. Kobe, how you doing? I'm doing good, buddy. I'm doing good. How you doing? I'm good. I've got a guest who knows about a number of sports, and I'm sure that's probably one of his insiders texting him a new update. It is writer and author from Chatham, the Chatham Kent Sports Network, Mr. Ian Kennedy. Ian, how's things? Things are great. How are you? That wasn't my beep, I promise you. It could have been an insider, but uh, not on my end. So <laughs> uh, Okay, I thought maybe you were getting some inside information on the the latest PHF and PWHPA talks or something like that. <laughs> oh, I wish. I I think that would be a, a scoop I'd like to have, but uh, uh, trade deadline's over, so my phone is quieted down, and uh, I'm just excited to talk to both of you. There we go. Now, do you have any initial takeaways from the trade deadline in the NHL? Oh, you know, I think most of the action happened over the weekend, so it's kind of that anticlimactic uh, event often where um, all the trades, the big the big news happens in the day before with the closures moving and things like that. But, uh, you know, if you want to consider Canadian teams, uh, I think that the, the Toronto Maple Leafs probably didn't do enough. Uh, I know that uh, getting Giordano was uh, uh, a big move for their blue line, but uh, there's just so much... Uh, questions surrounding their goaltending situation right now that that's uh, they would come across to me as one of the losers in in the bid to, same with the Edmonton Oilers I don't think that their goaltending situation is stable enough for the playoffs but uh, uh, winners you know Florida Panthers uh, Colorado Avalanche perhaps but uh, I don't really like considering anyone a winner until they actually win uh, that's the whole purpose of the trade deadline is to uh, set yourself up for a long playoff run and those two teams added pieces that would look like they should be able to find the next success. But, you know, just as easily uh, Colorado could find themselves knocked off by Vegas in round one or, or something along those lines with Florida. And um, that's just the way pro sports works. Indeed. So what I'm hearing is that the cup is not coming back across the border. <laughs> uh, as much as, uh, you know, people in, in my neck of the woods would hope so, um, you know, but you can't write off anybody. That's uh, Toronto is definitely uh, built with a lot of offensive firepower. I mean, you you can put Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner and John Tavares on a power play unit and scare anybody in the league. So that's uh, it, nothing can be knocked out. Even Peter Morazic, who I mean, they waived this week, but he was fabulous in Carolina and a hot streak in the playoffs. It doesn't take that long to win your way through a few simple series and uh, find yourself in a with a better matchup than you originally expected or have your 
you another contender deal with a major injury so it could happen uh, i'm not a leafs fan so deep in my heart i hope it doesn't uh but uh um you know it is what it is if it if it happens i'm sure there'll be a quite the party on uh, young and bluer indeed i'm not a leafs fan either and i'm just a realist <laughs> they, they, they're just gonna find another way to lose cope would you disagree I mean, I still tr- I root for the Leafs, right? I'm a Torontonian, so I root for the Leafs. But I'm I'm guessing maybe you're a Red Wings fan. <laughs> That's well, I'm, I grew up an hour from there, uh, right in the heyday of uh, you know watching Steve Eisman, uh, Stevie Y play. Yeah, so the, you know watching you watching him and the you know the Russian Five and um, you know I, I've been to, to four Stanley Cup parades there, which I like to rub in the the, the salt in the wounds of uh, all of my Toronto Maple Leaf. Uh, friends and family members and uh um so you know i lived through for any kid a heyday of of winning there when uh, salary caps weren't such a thing and you could kind of just buy your way to it like the new york yankees or something like that but uh, it's uh i don't dislike the leafs um i i've always said that uh, it's more the more bothersome that the the fans uh always seem to think that this is it and uh they they so vehemently defend their team, which is a great thing as well. But uh, being a Red Wings fan, it's it's just hard to. Uh, first of all, a Red Wings fan in Ontario, uh, it's you know it, I think that natural rivalry rivalry between fans is is just fun to take part in. So I like to you know throw the the jabs out when I can. Mm-hmm. What a- hold on, it's it's not just the fans. I mean, there's. So in recent memory, there's been a couple of seasons now where before the season begins, Vegas has them as the odds-on favorite. Absolutely. And I think if you look at their roster, why wouldn't you? They're, they are loaded. And, uh, you know, but I, as you guys said, they, they just do find a way to, yeah. uh, <laughs> to, to collapse <laughs> at the absolute wrong moment. And, uh, you know, I think, the best predictor of future performance is past performance. So if, uh, if they haven't won a playoff series in recent memory, um, if they can't get past the Boston's of the world, then it, it's hard to, you know, I guess it's that, that old debate of analytics versus watching the team play and analytics would say that, yes, they're a contender. They've got everything they need to have, maybe with the exception of goaltending at the moment, but, uh, um, they just magically uh, almost seem cursed. <laughs> now you you had to mention the Boston's of the world. Do you think the Toronto Six can get past the Boston's of the world? I would love to think so, and I I I would love to see that be. You know, I, I just interviewed uh, Michaela Grant Mentis the other day, and uh, I know that the the PHF had their Isabel Cup uh, media event, uh, and you know those playoffs are here. And it's, uh, I would love to see the Toronto Six be the first professional hockey team from Toronto to have a, a parade, uh, you know, since 1967. <laughs> well, that's, that's not entirely true. But I mean, I guess you could say that the, the Grey Cup isn't much of a parade. Well, no, hockey team. I, I would <laughs> love to be a hockey team. <laughs> of course, you know, the Grey Cup, yeah, sure, there's other teams. And, and of course, the Raptors, you the know, Raptors that was just yeah. fun for everybody. So, TFC. But for a hockey team, I would love to see the Toronto Six be that. Uh, bring a, a, champ, a hockey championship back north of the border would be wonderful. For sure. Yeah, and 
the fact that the league is expanding and it looks like Montreal will get a team that shows you that there is a recognition that there is growth in Canada in hockey. I know women's hockey went through some tough times with the CWHL's demise, but the PHF does seem to be uh, it does seem to be a phoenix rising from the ashes. As a hockey writer, how have you found the PHF, particularly in Ontario, in the in the last couple of years? Well, so you know, I've done a lot of uh, you know recently. My I'm spending most of my time writing for the hockey news. Um, I'm also doing analysis now for Yahoo Sports Canada. So um, I'm I'm interviewing a lot of these people. I talk to uh, uh, you know general managers and players within the PHF regularly, uh, and their communications department, and uh, they are you know, full on, full steam ahead trying to build women's hockey to be that sustainable league that everybody wants for the women's game. Um, of course, we recently learned that the PWHPA uh, has um, their own ideas of what that league's going to look like in the future. And, you know, of course, that's put a little bit of uh, anxiety into some of the people within the PHF. But uh, expansion's coming. I can't see them going back on that idea now. I think Montreal is going to happen. Um, there are other centers. I think Detroit would make logical sense. Milwaukee would make logical sense. Um, but that's, I think, at this point, going to depend on where the PWHPA says that they're going to put teams. Because, of course, when you've got a league with uh, Marie-Philippe Pelin and people like that, you know, the best of the best, Hillary Knight um, in the world... Uh, that's going to carry clout in terms of sponsors, in terms of um, communities that are looking to build uh, a recognizable brand like the WNBA's done over the last uh, decades. And I don't think that the PHF has that power, even though they've put in every ounce of work uh, necessary and they've moved the game of hockey forward, women's hockey forward, uh, more in the last year than I think has been done in quite some time. Uh, of course, we recently saw that they also announced a, a $25 million investment from ownership that's going to up their salary cap to $750,000 next year per team. And, uh, you know, that that's going to equate to women being paid $60,000, $70,000 a year U.S. Uh, to play in that league. And that's that's a good salary. As a starting point, I don't think anyone thinks that that's an acceptable salary for the professional women's game, uh, e including within the PHF. But they're all working diligently to make that expansion next year successful to go from six teams to to eight. Mm hmm. And yeah, we 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 watch with a sense of anticipation. I think the idea of competing leagues. First of all, it doesn't make sense in the market space. There isn't really a large enough fan base to support two leagues. Secondly, I understand where the the bargaining power comes from on the the, the, the competitive side. I understand that they've, they've got the Olympic players and such, but it'd be, you'd be very hard-pressed, even really serious hockey fans, be very hard-pressed to say, you know, name me five players off one of the national teams. Most people, most people couldn't. Yeah, you know, aside from Canada and the U.S., you're, you're probably absolutely right there. Um, and that's, uh, that is something that's developing. And, 
you know, the um, one of the other people I've uh, recently spoke to is Angela Ruggiero, who's, of course, uh, you know, Hockey Hall of Fame member, uh, Olympic medalist with Team USA, now the CEO of uh, Sports Innovation Lab. And what they're doing is looking at those changes in fandom and future fans, uh, which they call the fluid fan. Uh, and one of the things that they found, though, is that the uh, women's fans, because of the absence of ease to find the game, you know, for men's hockey fans, we can turn on the TV right now and I can guarantee you I can go find five games without putting exactly. any effort into it at all. But women's fans have had to be innovative and um, kind of, you know, seek it out. They've had to find different routes. They've had to find streaming platforms. Uh, they engage differently uh, on social media and other apps uh, to find hockey. And uh, the research that's coming out there says that, you know, women's hockey fans are more engaged during the game. They watch longer. They pay more attention to the game. Um, and I think that when these two leagues, the, the PHF and the PWHA, uh, whenever the, the, the situation settles out, I think that the, the fans are there. They're willing. They're excited for it. You know, are they going to put 20,000 people into every stadium uh, or arena in the first year? Absolutely not. But are they going to put five, six, seven, eight thousand people in in certain areas and more than that for the playoffs? Sure. And uh, that's a good start. And Rome wasn't built in a day. The WNBA wasn't built in a day. Uh, heck, the NHL, I mean, uh, it, 20 years ago, if you go back into the NHL, a lot of those guys were still working as roofers in the summers and things like that mm -hmm. to to put extra money in their family's table or extra food on the table and money in their pockets. It's not like it was always this $10 million a year or $7 million over eight years. You know, it's it wasn't that way for the longest time. And uh, men's hockey went through the exact same things with the, the World Hockey Association in, in the 1970s where two competing leagues fought it out for markets and for players for some time until a resolution came and, and really the NHL only became stronger after that because both leagues found new markets, both teams found new fans and, you know, we don't have the the Winnipeg Jets or the Edmonton Oilers and, and teams like that that came into the, the National Hockey League after the demise, for lack of a better word, I guess, of the, the WHA um, without that experiment happening so can two leagues survive probably not will one strong uh, successful profitable and sustainable women's professional hockey league surface over time here maybe you know maybe in the next two weeks who knows um, but it, yeah. I definitely believe it will just when is is of course the question well with with the NHL pushing them to make a deal that's that's a big step too, right? If you can get the NHL behind it, that, that's a massive coup. So hopefully that gets them talking, gets them together. I I hope so. Yeah, you know what though, the the whole topic of men driving women's sport, uh, it, it's it's bothersome to a point. The NHL has had the resources to already have a sustainable women's professional hockey league. There, I mean, if uh, if every NHL team kicked in a a league minimum salary of, of yep. $750,000, $800,000 to a league, which we know they all burn in buyouts and uh, sending guys down on waivers. That's just 
meaningless money to them, but uh, it would mean a world of difference if you put 32 teams in with with eight million bucks. You know, we're now talking about a, a three million, four million dollar salary cap per that's right uh, women's professional team, and then we're talking about every woman on the team making six figures, and the whole situation is solved. But um, so you know, to have Gary Bettman walk in there and you know play dad and try and get the kids at the table it, i think it's a little bit insulting after them not um putting any action into a women's league however if he's willing to come in there and rectify that situation and say you know today's the day that uh, we're going to move this thing forward together um or this year's the year that we're going to move this thing forward together more power to him because you know that that change in hockey needs to happen uh you know i have a daughter and i want her to to see any sport that she wants to play you know the, the national women's soccer league and the the women's team in the united states just got that pay equity and it's it's coming it just needs to come faster for sure it's it's almost a, a game of chicken when it comes to the nhl and batman right it's if you do something we'll do something right absolutely but you, yeah. you got to act first so that's that's basically what it's at. Mm, Gary Bettman reminds me of someone trying to catch a, a slippery puck in an ice storm. That's that's, Gary, <laughs> that's dealing with Gary Bettman. I mean, you only need to look back to the the way the Olympic break was handled uh, during the NHL season. So we'll see. We shall see. I know Justin Williams, the third member of our team, he would echo my thoughts on Mr. Bettman. And I'm sure the people of Winnipeg would echo said thoughts, but we'll move on from that. Back to you, Ian. Now, you actually founded the Chatham Kent Sports Network. Tell us what went into that. Uh, you know, I think it's, that was, uh, so that happened in 2011. So it's it's a, more than a decade in now. And uh, that was just a, a labor of love, really. You know, I was just a person that always loved sports, uh, grew up loving writing. And, uh, so, you know, like most of us that want to get into that, bracket of of media we we start a blog or we start a our own outlet or or we just start putting our information out there and and i did that locally you know and it it rapidly grew to be a a pretty successful regional thing but it was really a gateway for me into getting to live those bigger dreams of course you know now that i'm doing with uh, other outlets but it it, uh, we have some successful you know athletes from our our area you know that uh, if you look at the toronto maple leafs tj brody is from our community, uh, Travis Connecting from the Philadelphia Flyers, Major League Baseball Hall of Famer Fergie Jenkins is from here, and it's uh, Olympian and Canadian Olympian WNBA player Bridget Carlton, captain of Team Canada's Rugby Sevens team, Brianne Nicholas is from our community. Uh, so, you know, we have this huge group of successful athletes from our town, but we are um, just like anybody else, you know, a very rural, very small community that uh, doesn't always get the recognition. So when I got into that, I really just started kind of telling those stories and trying to promote those athletes. And over the years, you know, you get the feedback of a kid telling you that they used the articles that you had written about them to help them get a scholarship or get recruited to a school or or whatever it might be. And And those things are are really rewarding uh, on a community building basis. And that's kind of what it always was. It was always, um, and still is, for community promotion. I never dreamed it would be a business or, 
you know, a successful media outlet itself. It was my hobby. It was my enjoyment. And uh, to, it opened a lot of doors for me too, in terms of, you know, writing my first book that's coming out, uh, uh, getting hired by, uh, you know, my kind of my dream media outlets that I'd always read as a kid. So I guess, you know, I started out telling the stories of those athletes and, and I guess I got the similar opportunity to, to have that to promote to not only them, but myself in the, in the process. And, but it definitely labor of love. If, if uh, anyone wants to uh, start their own local newspaper or media, gosh, uh, the hours that, that uh, can be put into that and the, the days that can be lost uh, trying to dig up those stories when you don't have 50 other media sources writing about the same thing is, uh, uh, can be uh, completely all-consuming. I can imagine. This episode is brought to you by the good folks at New Smile. Just use the code PROSPORTS to get $150 off any of their teeth aligning kits. So turn up the dial on your smile with New Smile. Now on to the show. So you'd say it's more of a challenge to write about a story when there's, there's less info out there or do you prefer to find a niche, like going down a pathway that not others may not have? I, absolutely. I, you know, the um, finding your own spot in writing. I mean, reporting a score is a dime a dozen, right? And and today with social media, I think uh, fifteen years ago or even ten years ago, I guess when uh, when that started, reporting a score actually meant something because you know Twitter was there, of course, Facebook was there. But it, they weren't the types of monsters that they are now where the second something happens, everybody knows. So the next day, people would still wake up and go to a website to find out a score. They didn't already know it. But uh, digging deeper to actually tell the stories of people or of challenges or of social issues, that is sports journalism. Um, I think what we confuse with sports journalism quite often is sports stats. journalism or yeah stats or sports media outlets serving as public relations departments for professional sports teams you know i can put out the information and celebrate all the things that uh, the maple leafs or the red wings or uh, you know in my area i guess it's the i can't say there's any success for the detroit lions so who knows uh, uh, what team i can pick there to talk about but uh, Very you know, I, yeah sure yeah <laughs> But I, I, you know, I don't need to do that job. That's not really what journalism is. Journalism is questioning the systems that are in place. It's uh, digging deeper into uh, the underworkings of leagues and of teams and of this, the stories that tell about uh, the people, uh, because that's what that's what's going to connect to fans more nowadays, and that's what's going to connect to to readers more nowadays is uh, learning that in depth information. I mean, people are probably more concerned about uh, the fact that. Uh, you know, Connor McDavid has a, a heated driveway than they are actually about what, how many points he put up last night. You know, everybody knows he scored, but finding out the the intricate details about his life and his background and, and things like that, his relationships, is all those things are where uh, fandom is going nowadays. So, so digging deeper into those things. But for me, it's mostly uh, I'm I'm big into equity in sport. I'm big into amplifying voices of. Uh, racialized communities or the LGBTQ plus community, uh, women in sport, anything that, you know, any marginalized person that hasn't seen themselves traditionally in sport, that's, uh, I guess that's become my niche um, in sports and in sort storytelling that way, because uh, there, there really aren't a lot of people that are 
are comfortable or uh, I don't want to say people that are uh, experienced in that because there's tons of fantastic people within those communities that can do this job better than even I can do uh, by far. But uh, that's not traditionally the person that's gotten that uh, that opportunity in sports journalism. So hopefully I can stand here and hold the door open and let some people in. There we go. I like the sound of that. I'm both Kobe and I were both were both black, so yeah, we we I guess that was one of the reasons why we started this podcast, Kobe. We wanted to to shine a light on the sports that weren't getting the attention and also share the stories and hear from the voices that weren't getting uh, a say in the room. Would you agree, Kobe? Big time. We do shine a light on some of the more niche market sports that big media doesn't cover. And then we cover the outside angle of things as well. And it surprised me actually when Nia had informed me that we we're going to have you on the show. I looked in you background. Of course, you have the book coming out that's all about equity in sports. And realizing you're from Chatham-Kent, to me, it just threw me. The connection just wasn't there. Well, I can tell you the connection because, and that's, you know, uh, so we, you know, we are very rural, very conservative, always been conservative. You know, I'm, I'm 38 years old now and there has never not been a conservative government here. So, uh, we are not that welcoming in a lot of ways, just like, you know, Canada has this, uh, this ideology or this, uh, this reputation as being this very welcoming, uh, all-inclusive, you know, kind of country. But that's really, it's just really something that we portray. It's not actually truth for everyone. And so my book, On Account of Darkness, really looks at that from a Chatham-Kent area. But uh, using stories here just to tell the broader topic of, uh, which actually, you know, you guys talked about Shining Light. The the, uh, subtitle of my book is Shining Light on Race and Sport. And uh, uh, but Chatham-Kent was a, we had two major terminals in the Underground Railroad here. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin uh, is here uh, and North Buxton, which was uh, both, uh, at, at one point Chatham-Kent had uh, uh, something like, uh, you know, 1,500 uh, black residents and the city of Toronto had 700 at the time. So we were like double the population of, of Toronto's black community. And, you know, Dresden still has a, an above Canadian average black population. Chatham's East End is, is heavily um, still uh, a, a black community. Um, Buxton still has the annual homecoming there. And, uh, but we have other things, you know, we have uh, two First Nations communities that uh, border our community. And um, in terms of uh, my book, we also dive into in, in the topic of Japanese Canadians because uh, Chatham Kent was unfortunately uh, played a major role in uh, Japanese internment during World War II, where uh, we had a, uh, a just a crazy amount of five internment camps here wow. uh, because we are an agricultural community and the forced labor was a needed asset during the the war. So. All of those things brought a really diverse group of athletes to our area or or the settlements following those things um, brought a really diverse group of athletes here. And uh, some of the, you know, the lesser known, like the Fergie Jenkins of the world, who was the first Canadian ever into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, um, the first ever 
indigenous man to play Major League Baseball was from Wapool Island First Nation, which is in our area here. Um, it's just, uh, you know, we have the, the first ever black NCAA hockey coach is from Chatham. So it's, uh, we have this huge list of people that uh, their stories have just not been told. They're not part of the main narrative of sports history because that narrative has, uh, you know, ostracized or outcasted or, or kept outside or get gatekept uh, uh, the BIPOC community for centuries. So is your book a historical recounting of some of these things or no? Yeah, it, it is. Um, I don't want to call it a history book. It's more um, on the issues that uh, go right from, of course, uh, you know, uh, anti-slavery movements, uh, which caused settlement in our area through to colonization, um, whether it be bringing the sport of cricket here or um, kind of the stealing, for lack of a better word, I guess, of the game of lacrosse and turning it into from, you know, this... uh, creators game this medicine game to a box lacrosse game that's played in arenas to keep arenas functional when the ice isn't there for hockey so it's uh, from those original things um through to you know dresden ontario which is in our little chatham kent municipality was the site of the first ever racial discrimination case court case in canada uh which sparked uh, pretty much our our Ontario Human Rights Codes all came from the court cases that uh, that came off of that. And at the same time, there was, you know, sundown towns here where black people couldn't be in after after dark. And uh, But athletes continued playing through that. Uh, probably the most notable one in the book is our uh, Chatham Colored All-Stars who played from 1932 to 1939. And um, in 1934, they became the first ever all-black baseball team to win a provincial championship in Canada. Um, and to historical knowledge, uh, are still the only ever all-black baseball team to do so. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I had an article in the uh, the Globe and Mail uh, criticizing the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame for keeping them out uh, for the fifth straight year of their nomination. So still a large push here to have that team inducted. And uh, so, so definitely the book moves through the history, but it's, uh, it's really kind of telling our truth as Canadians that, uh, you know, our ambivalent attitudes towards race and towards how that uh, permeates into sport because saying that the best athletes are going to make it no matter what is an absolute lie and it's been a lie for uh, forever. Of course, you know, we can talk about Willie O'Ree being the first black hockey player in the NHL in 1958, but uh, 12 years prior to that, a, a man from Chatham uh, named Wilfred Boomer Harding was the first black man to ever skate at Detroit's Olympia Stadium, and he was the first black hockey player ever to play professional hockey in the International Hockey League, which you know was one of the main feeder systems for the NHL at the time. And uh, um, Mike Marzen, who was the second ever black hockey player in the NHL, uh, played junior hockey in Chatham here too. So it's uh, we we kind of have been this mecca for untold stories of diverse players, but um, it doesn't block the issues that still exist today. That uh, you know we see racism in hockey all the time, and it's uh, 
or in all sports, not just hockey, that's for sure. And it mm-hmm. uh, needs to change, of course, and hopefully putting out this kind of book and uh, talking to people like yourselves helps that conversation move forward. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I guess that's eye-opening to me as someone who didn't grow up in Canada. Like you said, there is perception or a, perso- a national persona of being welcoming, but I guess every nation has its own uh, skeletons in the closet, for lack of a better term. Well, I, I, to comment on that, Nee, I think the reason why the general feeling is that Canadians are pretty easygoing and, and welcoming to all is because we are measured by our neighbors south of us. Ah. Right? So when you're so closely related geographical position and one nation's got this horrible backstory that everyone knows versus the other, it, it makes you look that much better, right? Mm-hmm. And our, our story is there, though. I mean, we talked, like I said, you, you look at Japanese internment. You know, of course, the United States did the same thing. And uh, residential schools in, Ont- in Canada were, of course, a, a atrocious cultural genocide of Indigenous people. And uh, even at those schools uh, or facilities, I hate calling them schools, but uh, at those facilities, the... Uh, uh, the game of hockey was introduced to make Indigenous children feel more Canadian and to assimilate them into Canadian culture. So uh, sport has always been used as a tool of colonization, as a tool of uh, assimilation, as, as a tool to uphold the, the structures of racism um, systemically in our culture. And uh, that's not different in Canada, despite what we want to tell ourselves. And uh, I think you're exactly right that, you know, we're measured based on uh, uh, what's just south of us. And, and uh, but, you know, just because we're measured by that doesn't mean that we we haven't historically had the, the same problems and we don't continue to have them in sport. In fact, sometimes I think that makes it worse because when something does happen, we we point it out and say, you know, that's just the a bad apple or something. And it's it's not true. It's the, the, that system still exists. We, we were governed from the same, uh, you know, we, we both had slavery. We both had, uh, residential schools or boarding schools. We both interned Japanese Canadians or, and Japanese Americans during the war. We've done the exact same thing. Somehow we've just come out on the, uh, uh, you know, the, the upper end of that, uh, worldview, I guess. Now, Ian, you touched on lacrosse, and lacrosse has always interested me because I put it is something that you got introduced in, uh, to in primary school in Australia, and I've always wondered why it hasn't been an Olympic sport. I know there's a movement to get it there, but do you think we'll ever see lacrosse at the Summer Olympics? I absolutely think we should see lacrosse at uh, the Olympics. I guess, you know, the problem is that uh, we need to look at uh, there's got to be a a world body with enough nations that can play it. Um, you know, of course, Canada, and the United States have it. Uh, like you said, you know, places like Australia have played it. Uh, I know that uh, from our community, we actually have a coach that's uh, gone over and coached uh, Israel's national team. So it is growing across the world. But the really unique part about uh, um, lacrosse is that I think, you know, we also have sovereign indigenous nations uh team iroquois has been a a team in international competition uh for a very long time and we've recently got another person from you know that i actually grew up playing hockey with uh 
Isaiah Kignaswe has launched a, an Anishinaabe uh, team that will be its own sovereign nation in international lacrosse competition as well. And uh, that's a wonderful thing because lacrosse is kind of reclaiming itself uh, in sport as that traditional form where, uh, you know, as an Indigenous game, uh, will it be in this, the Olympics? I don't know. I hope. But the IOC would really have to change their rules for there not to be an upcry within those Indigenous communities because they've been such a, uh, a cornerstone of the sport that to exclude those independent uh, Indigenous nations would be, uh, you know, I just don't see how the game could go there without them. And I don't think within the, the IOC's current laws and rules, I don't see how they could go there with them either. So it's really a, another case where those racialized communities are probably going to be on the outside looking in if it does happen. Now, just to expand on that, there there are times in the Olympics for, for one reason or another where you see uh, groups of athletes or teams even compete under the the Olympic flag. Do you think from your discussions with uh, people from the lacrosse community and other communities, could that be, I guess, a viable solution on the way to something in the future? You know, I, th I think that the original, probably the way that would go would be that they would come in as one of those showcase sports that would, uh, you know, play an exhibition tournament there. I don't think that, um, and, you know, I'm not an Indigenous person, so for me to, to speak um, on behalf of anyone, it would be inappropriate. But uh, I can't imagine, you know, voluntarily ridding yourself of your cultural and national identity just to appease this this large governing body that has a you know as we've seen with their treatment of uh, uh, Russian athletes and things like that recently it, it's can be kind of unethical at times uh, how the IOC operates and to ask uh, someone to get rid of that identity just to fit into their westernized kind of format would be i don't I, I don't know i don't i don't see that being the route to take um because you know typically that's that is reserved for people that are being punished as a, a political kind of uh, anyone that's you know i guess we saw it during the apartheid where south africa was kind of ousted uh we saw it following world war ii and world war one where Germany and Austria were not allowed to compete, uh, or sorry, not not allowed to compete. Were not invited to compete. Uh, had they shown up, who knows what would have happened historically? But uh, and we now see it with the Russian athletes, you know. But uh, they're still called the ROC. The word Russia is still in the name, so I'm not sure what that's actually doing. But uh, could I see that happening for Indigenous communities? I don't think that's the route to do it. I think that the IOC needs to change their uh, inclusion measures to actually allow Team Iroquois and, uh, you know, an Anishinaabe community to actually come in and play as sovereign nations. They are members of the world. They're nations within the world. They're communities in the world. Um, they're just not governed by the same uh, imaginary lines that we've all drawn in the sands to raise our flags about. Mm hmm Yeah. Uh, I get what you're saying. Now, your book... On Account of Darkness, 
where can our listeners find that? Where is it available? It's available in bookstores and not online? It's available everywhere. You can find your books. You know, if you're in Canada, you can uh, you can go onto Chapters or Indigo. Um, you can go to Amazon, of course. Uh, uh, ideally, you know, I'd love you to support uh, uh, an independent uh, publishing company in Canada and go to uh, TidewaterPress.ca, which is my publishing company that's uh, from British Columbia that's uh, putting out this book and and purchase it through there. But uh, uh, if you're in the United States, you know, you can go to Barnes and Noble. It, it is everywhere uh, that you can find a book right now. Um, the official launch date is uh, uh, around May 15th. Um, so you're not going to physically receive a paper copy in hand until uh, that date because that's when it's going to ship out. Uh, right now we're in pre-order phase, but uh, you can you can Google On Account of Darkness, Shining Light on Race and Sport. Uh, you can put that into any uh, any bookstore that you can get your books at and uh, it's going to pop up and I would love for more people to read it. And uh, we just got our, our recent uh, reviews uh, from our pre-readers come in some folks from TSN and hometown hockey and uh, the nation magazine and a few uh, Olympians and hockey hall of famers or baseball hall of famers, sorry, uh, have read it and reviewed it. And that's been uh, a lovely uh, thing to see happening. So the, the hype is out there and I, I'm hoping, uh, more than anything, you know, uh, I want uh, people to to take away some kind of message from it and uh, hear my own story through it too, which I've kind of put myself into the book as a person that uh, was raised as part of the problem and uh, has kind of learned. And because we can all do that and make sport uh, a part where, you know, of our society where any person can see themselves represented and um, I just hope it does kind of create that change for for future generations of uh, Black and Indigenous and Japanese Canadian uh, people. Mm-hmm. Now, you did touch on cricket before, so I can't let you go without asking a question <laughs> about cricket. Are we going to see the rise of Canadian cricket once again? <laughs> there is a, there is a cr- uh, cricket club in my hometown now that uh, never existed. I shouldn't say never existed. It hasn't existed since uh, about 1900 or uh, 1910 probably. It was somewhere around the last time that was actually a, a thing. Uh, you know, cricket was Canada's sport. It really was for uh, quite some time until baseball reared its ugly head and mm-hmm. uh, came into things and, and took it away. Are we going to see that again in Canada? You know, I don't know if Canadians love baseball that much even. Uh, it's definitely a, a sport where we've had lots of success, but you know, Canada is so hockey mad. We love the CFL, um, you know, lacrosse, the national lacrosse league's hugely popular. Of course, uh, you know, we love the Raptors and the Jays. Is there room for more sport enthusiasm in Canada? Absolutely. But I, I don't know if crickets, uh, I, I personally, uh, don't understand the game that well. Um, I didn't until recently, it. actually. Okay. Knee, knee, knee taught me cricket, and I'm actually kind of a fan now. <laughs> I, uh, absolutely. I can see, you know, it, I think that's the, the case with a lot of sports, right? Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that you're not going to love it. it. You know, it used to be taught in schools here, and that was uh, uh, for for some rather dark reasons that I, you know, you can read my book and find out about, but uh, it's 
I don't know. I don't think knee. I don't think you're. I don't think you're getting cricket back here. Uh, it once was uh, Canadian love, and I just don't. Uh, I don't know how it fits into that all-consuming uh, hockey market that we seem to be. It's also a time-sensitive thing, too, right? It's it's the networks, <laughs> the amount of time it takes to show a full <laughs> cricket match. It doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit, and that's that's a huge block. It's oh, I don't know. Here. Come on. During the, you know, during the first <laughs> NHL lock lockout, I, uh, just like everybody else, I sat down and watched four straight hours of, uh, world series poker. So who knows, you know, anything's possible. Hey, with Gary uh, Bittman as commissioner. Absolutely. Anything yes. is possible. So who knows, you know, it could find its way on there. There's, there's a lot of, uh, I turn on, you know, the major sports networks from time to time and I see darts on there and I think, how the heck is this here? So, Cricket to me would be far more interesting than that. Um, I would love to learn more about it, and uh, any kind of any opportunity you have to bring world games, you know, games from other countries that we don't know about, and uh, help teach people about uh, different opportunities that they can have to participate in sport. Uh, because of course, hockey doesn't fit every person. Neither does football or basketball or whatever. So, you know, there are those clubs in local communities. I'd love to see it grow at a grassroots level. Uh, will it rival the NHL? Not in Canada. <laughs> Not here, no. No. <laughs> now, yeah, I guess that's interesting. I guess from my thinking, I think the way it will survive and thrive is going to be through the diaspora communities. So it's, it's definitely a strong South Asian population that plays cricket in Canada from what I've seen. Uh, you've got a few people from the West Indian community that play it. I think that, that will be the foundation. And then... Once you see this, the shorter forms of the game, one, one of them is T20, 2020 cricket. Once that permeates North America and really proliferates the TV market, then I think people will start to take it up. Because like Cobb said, cricket is one of the few games where they still stop for lunch and for tea. <laughs> it's, it's governed by the meal break, not the commercial break. But yeah, they are they are doing things to try and... Mo- uh, I guess modernize. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and that's our population is changing, right? You know, um, immigration is the largest source of population growth in Canada, and as uh, as you know, the, the people within our country change. Sport is a wonderful thing like that. It can be brought back and it can be built up, and it would be wonderful to see those communities teach other people about cricket because you know I, I love playing any sport you can put a badminton racket in my hand and I'm in love with it so you know it's just uh, the opportunity and the exposure hasn't been there so if those more accessible versions that you're talking about come to be I'm all for it you know sign me up I'll, I'll go and play in a recreational cricket league I'm sure I'd be thrilled to do it so and I, I know that uh, if tea time's in there too and if I can schedule around meals I'm that's that sounds like a dream sport to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there was nothing nothing better. Like you play on a Saturday, you stop for lunch, eat a few sandwiches, get back out there, have a cup of tea, and then yeah, you finish the finish the day's play at sun, sun, sunset. Let's be honest. I don't go to a baseball game quite often to watch the baseball. I'm more there for the snacks and to have a uh, a beverage in the stands and to socialize. So you know the I think the 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 ideology of that style of fandom too, of the longer game and the the socialization aspect is already in existence in a format that, uh, you know, has become North Americanized through baseball. But uh, as I said, you know, as populations change and that would be, 
it'd be great to, you know, maybe I'll see you out on the field sometime with uh, my very probably losing Chatham team because we're, we we still have ways to go in terms of uh, bringing some of those more uh, sports that are not as quote unquote Canadian um, back into <laughs> into the game here. So. Okay, well, I guess if I'm out in the in the CK area, I'll have to get down to a field and roll my arm over and see how I stuck up. Perfect. Yeah. Now, Ian, we can find you on Twitter at Ian Kennedy CK. Do you have any other social medias that you'd like to share with the audience? Same thing for uh, Instagram. Um, you know, I, I'm open to anybody reaching out to me in any format, and uh, uh, my DMs are always open to talk sports or to if you have a story to tell that you think. Uh, you know, hasn't been highlighted or an issue that you feel is important in the sports world. I, I'm, I love to have those conversations because I think that's, you know, again, we can get so tied up in scores and stuff, but the real story exists just beneath the surface there and in, uh, in people's existence and their, their ability to uh, participate in sport and some of the systems that stop that or, or, you know, just our, our everyday love for the game. And, and you can definitely find me on Twitter and Instagram and, uh, I'd be more than thrilled to have a follow and uh, to follow you back and have that conversation about sport. Fantastic. Fantastic. We appreciate your time, Ian. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. And for even more of your favorite sports content, be sure to visit the website, www.prosportspodcasters.com. Because on the website, you will find our sports blog, full podcast library, access to our YouTube channel, and deals from our affiliate partners. You can also sign up to become a PSP Insider and get exclusive access to our Insider Tips, Sponsor Giveaways, and Insider Newsletter. So don't miss out on the full Pro Sports Podcasters experience, where no sport 